talking? Plants are living organisms, right? Don't you know you put you put electrodes on them, they respond to stimuli? Look, I can put electrodes on a frog leg and make it dance around the table. It doesn't mean it wants an audition. It's called an electrochemical reaction. Well, what about sunflowers, huh? Sunflowers? Yeah, why do they turn towards the sun? That's what plants do. It's called heliotropism. But why do they do it? Because they need the sunlight. Aha. Aha, what? They need Fleischmann, just like we need, and they act to satisfy those needs. Hello, and welcome to Northern Overexposure Podcast. The podcast is just like Gilmore Guys, except instead of Gilmore Girls, we're talking about Northern Exposure. Yeah, that's basically it. That kind of sums us up. My name is Lee. My name is Charles. And we really overanalyze the heck out of this television series. We really get into the nitty gritty of it. We do our best. This is your first time watching the show, Charles. I've seen the show a number of times. And today's episode is the 11th episode. In season three, it's called Dateline Sicily. Dateline colon Sicily. Uh, You speculated that this might be like the television news journalism uh, you know, last episode you were trying to guess what this episode would be like. I think he, yeah, you, I think he nailed it. I think I got it pretty right. Lots of journalism going around here, though. I thought it would be more about journalistic integrity, which I guess it is. To there's a degree, some, yeah, there's some, but talk about that. It's mostly like yellow journalism. What <laughs> is yellow journalism? Uh, it's basically just fake news. Oh, okay, uh, what we would call it today, National Enquirer or whatever it is. Well, National Choir was a little bit better. Back then, you know, they would write about Elvis still being alive or Bigfoot walking around. Now they're writing about, you know, does evolution really exist? Oh, wow. So I really enjoyed this episode because I found that this was one of the only Northern Exposure episodes that was really plot heavy. Like it's plot driven. Okay. It keeps going forward. And there's a lot of segments that you don't ordinarily see in an episode of Northern Exposure. First thing off the top of my mind, montage scene. That's right. That. Yeah, there is like a little montage. There are elements of montage in, in earlier episodes. But yeah, this one is basically a montage of, you know, static shots of people reading newspapers as Ed is delivering newspapers. So it's kind of like cutting back and forth. By the way, during that montage, there's like uh, some sort of like hip hop, you know, DJ music going on. I couldn't for the life of me figure out what it's called. It's not listed on Moose Chick. And uh, Shazam couldn't really help me there either. It sounded like perfect montage music to me. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> definitely uh, period appropriate. It felt it felt like the right thing to do in the '90s. So there are a lot of moving parts in this episode, but they all coalesce into one plot point. Now there is two different plots, but the main plot of involving Joel and Adam and Maurice and Ed, all of those are just together in this episode keeps going throughout them, but we all keep ending on the same beats between those characters. Like reaching the same destination or something? Yeah. And the other plot line, which isn't as closely related to the other one, kind of moves in its own rhythm. But I felt that this was really unique because ordinarily there's three separate plot lines, plot line A, B, and C. For this episode, it seems like the plot just kept driving forward because we just wanted to see what would happen at the very end. And the the second plot you're talking about, is that the Chris and Holling? Is that what you're thinking? Yeah, so the second plot line is Chris and Holling, and I like that one too. Yes. Do you want to start with that? That's kind of, I think that's the first scene, right? Holling visits Joel's office. Yeah, so Holling's going to be emerging into Joel's office, and we think it's going to be for something medical related because, you know... Joel's a doctor. Yeah, he, he, Joel exclaims that Holling looks pretty under the weather, like pale or, or just 
just not right. Something's wrong. Yeah. So it turns out that Holling hasn't paid his taxes in 30 something odd years, <laughs> I want to say. Yes. I think since Alaska became a state, right? He just never paid taxes. Yeah. He was against statehood. And he owes the IRS $9,000, which in, uh, you know, today's currency is something like $17,000. Yeah. That's a massive chunk of money just to owe to IRS. And he wants Joel to write him a sick note, like a doctor's excuse, so he doesn't have to pay. God, that'd be so, so great if we could do that. Oh my God. I actually really left that line. So that reminded me of my favorite Planet Money episode, okay. what Holling just tried to pull. So this comes from the Planet Money episode, Tax Hero. And it has a lot of tax jargon just thrown throughout it, but I absolutely love this episode. And a lot of these quotes I'm taking directly from the transcript of the episode. Okay, here we go. So Holling figured that the government would alert him if they needed his tax dollars. And it sounds silly to just not pay taxes because no one told you to, but in other parts of the world, that's exactly how it works. In parts of Europe, Asia, Scandinavia, and Australia, the government would send you a tax return that was already filled out. It would include all the income that the government knew about, all the taxes that had already been withheld from your paychecks, and you would look it over and mail it in. But not in America, where your taxes are due by April 15th of each tax year. But a Stanford tax professor named Joe Bankston thought, why not? Bankston thought, the way I think of it is, imagine if the credit card companies acted like the IRS. Each month, you'll get a visa bill, and it'd be a blank piece of paper, and you'd have to write down all of your purchases and add it up, and if you did it wrong, you'd face a penalty. So the IRS could act like visa, and paying taxes would be like paying a credit card bill. He called it Ready Return, and he sent it out to 11,000 Californians to try it out, and the consensus was they loved it. It had a 99% approval rating. You can't even get a 99% approval rating on pizza, with one reviewer saying, finally, government's doing something to make my life better for a change. So Joe went to his legislators to try to propose ready return for the entire state of California, but eventually Intuit got wind of what he was doing. Intuit is the company that owns TurboTax. TurboTax is, of course, the very popular tax preparation software. It's a multi-billion dollar corporation, a multi-million dollar business, that is now staring down the barrel of Joe's ready return plan. Intuit has vested interest in keeping their business competitive, so they would try to influence the other lawmakers by donating to their super PACs. And it was looking grim until Joe hired his own lobbyist by the name of Mike Robson. With Mike, the talks with the lawmakers started getting easier, but Republican legislators in particular were against it. The reason why was because the lawmakers were backed by Grover Norquist, the president of Americans for Tax Reform. Grover believes that if the tax system is on autopilot, they'll start sneaking things in, like how cell phone companies sneak in little charges. And you look at them and sort of wonder about them, but in the end, you just pay it because it's easier. And Norquist has his famous pledge, and Republicans all across the country take it. And the pledge basically says, I will not support any plan that raises taxes. And that was a problem, because when somebody breaks the pledge, their opponents in the next election reminded voters that they lied their way into office, and the press tends to focus on it. So Norquist put out the word to California Republicans, if you back ready return. So Joe disagreed with that, though. He thought he was simply providing a service for Americans to easily access their tax information and for be able to pay off their taxes, just like hauling. So Joe Bankman, this tax law professor, and his lone lobbyist are now battling not only a multi-billion dollar software company, but also one of the biggest names in US politics. But the weeks go on, and eventually Joe only needs one more vote for this to pass to make Ready Return available to everyone in California. 
Joe finally gets the one vote, but on the day of the vote, the lawmaker, that one vote he needed, he changes his mind, and Joe loses. And with that loss, other states don't want to try their own version of Ready Return. So Joe, he kind of just goes back to teaching, but he keeps fighting the good fight. And we fast forward to 2020, and here's some good news. The IRS now prohibits companies from hiding their free filing programs, and the IRS is now in talks of starting their own tax return software to compete against TurboTax. But hope for a tax form that's already filled out automatically remains slim because of this one line that keeps getting added to the appropriations bill. The industry has put a rider on a bill that would make it illegal for the federal government to do the kind of return pre-population that's the basis for a ready return and that California is doing. Still, Joe remains optimistic that a new Congress or a new president could shake that rider off that appropriations bill. Okay, interesting. So yeah, this guy is trying to basically fight for the everyman, like the person who is confused by taxes and maybe sort of like Holling doesn't understand what the, you know, why or, or if they actually need to pay to, what, yeah, how would you tie this over to Holling exactly? Yeah, so Holling thought that whatever money he needed to owe to the IRS, the IRS would contact him if it was really important, but <laughs> yeah. obviously it doesn't work that way. But this tax form, it would just come out to you every year already filled out from the information that the government has on you. And they do have this information. I mean, that's how they check if you've overpaid or underpaid. Yeah. Like, they have the answers to the homework. We're just sending it to them just so they can double-check it. In case there's any discrepancies, I guess. Yeah, exactly. And I love this story because you would think that it's an ordinary, you know, good side versus bad side, that you would think that it's got a simple solution uh-huh. that everybody would want this. But I think it's actually genius what Grover was thinking because he's thinking a little bit further down the road. He's thinking that just like if you automate the bill, you're going to pay it like a cable or a cell phone bill, and it's going to increase your taxes. The government's actually going to make it more expensive for you, which is a reasonable Mm. thought. But still, it depends on your outlook of what government should do if you think that the government's going to abuse its power. So I think that both sides are really reasonable to a degree. But my heart's with Joe Bankson and his fight for the common man and what he actually could have done for Holling. Yeah, if only he had uh, come around 30 years prior and helped Holling out a little bit. But uh, <laughs> no, it's okay. I think Holling does find a pretty good solution in this episode. And then, you know, we wouldn't have an episode uh, with Holling and Chris like this if Holling did have all of his taxes paid in time. Yeah, that's true. Yeah, so Chris's uh, his introduction to this episode... He's sort of got the blues, maybe. He's in a slump. He is in like a rut. He needs to find some greater purpose that, you know, what, what's going on in his life currently is quite boring. He gets, you know, mail from Bernard, who is in Africa still, and it just sounds amazing. And Chris is sort of in this little prison cell of K-Bear, uh, you know, and also lots of rain in this episode, just very dreary. So he's always surrounded by raindrops and stormy weather. He's even got a monologue on rain. Yeah, it ties into the monologue, uh, which is an amazing piece of, uh, of writing, I think. And we'll get into that, I think, as we get further into this plot line, because it, it sort of uh, has a lot of ties to some themes that we haven't just yet stepped into. But let's, let's sort of uh, jump right into it. So Holling meets with Chris because he knows Chris has an inheritance from his uh, father who passed away. 
And apart from Maurice, Chris is uh, sort of the only, you know, rich person in Sicily who can afford to perhaps bail uh, hauling out. Yeah, so Chris still has a pretty good windfall from his brother Bernard. And he really welcomes the opportunity because he thinks that's the thing that's going to get him out of the funk by him just going to a new direction. Something that's a little bit left field for him. Yeah. Like to go own a business. That's right. And yes, the opportunity presented here is... uh, half ownership of the bar, the brick, because Holling's not looking for a loan. He has a pretty good quote here. He says, I don't believe in debt. What a man can't pay for, he can't own. Mm. <laughs> How would he have paid for the brick in the first place? Like, it, I'm pretty sure he went into some form of debt to get the brick and had to pay off the mortgage for it. I don't know. Presumably, it- unless he had a lot of money to start with, like so much capital, he could just outright buy it. <laughs> I was just saying he got a business loan. Well, it sounds like he doesn't believe in that, Charles. I think he might have built it with his bare hands, chopped down all the wood himself. How would he hunted all the to animals? Do that, <laughs> this is the Wild West, you know? Um, yeah, I don't know. You know, th- those are definitely conflicting ideas. The thought that Holling could never be in debt and the fact that he owns a business, which, you know, is is quite a large investment. And in fact... We talked on a previous episode about a deleted scene where he was in debt to a friend for something like 10 cents. So it's a small amount, but he has definitely been in debt before. Uh, but maybe that's what changed him. Maybe that's, the, maybe that's the moment in time. Sometime after he opened the brick, he borrowed 10 cents from a friend. <laughs> I don't know. I don't, I don't understand this timeline. Well, I think it's really honorable in the concept that a man shouldn't have debt. Like, I understand what yeah. he's trying to come from. <laughs> and maybe I'm just overanalyzing it from this I think degree. We are, using yeah. A very, Both of us. Using my little accounting degree that I have, that that's just not how, that's not how financial institutions work <laughs> at all. But anyway, the context of the episode, Chris is about to be half owner of the brick and he's losing his mind. He absolutely loves the idea. Holling, ever since I inherited that money, my karma has been all dressed up with nowhere to go, man. I love bars. You know that. Holling, I dream about bars. Best talk I ever had with my dad in a bar, man. I patched him up after a fight. Holling, I know the layout of every bar I ever been in. I I know the bartender's name. I know what they charge me for a drink. I was made for this, Holling. I was made to own a bar. I love that Chris loves bars. I think that fits into his character perfectly. Yeah, it's totally him. He's always just hanging out at the brick. And uh, yeah, we learn a lot about his relationship with bars uh, throughout this episode. And it's just, what a fun idea. Just imagining Chris in the morning as your bartender. And in fact, like the first night that he is sort of co-owner of the bar, he uh, is giving out free drinks it's just the the hippest place on the planet, man. Adam is the head chef again. Adam has returned, spoiler alert. And Chris is just buying you free drinks. It's amazing. Oh, yeah, definitely. There's no way that Chris has not had a job as a bartender. <laughs> you don't think so? I mean, yeah, he seems like a natural, right? He seems like he definitely would have done it right when it was legal for him to do so, <laughs> like right at the age of 21. Yeah, he seems to be really good at it. And... Unfortunately, as we'll learn in this episode, it, it's sort of, you know, he's, he is very good at it, but it sort of diminishes the, the happiness he, he derives from bars, right? He sort of gets this kind of complex where he just can't, he doesn't feel the same when he's in the bar. Yeah, it's one of those classic cases of turning your hobby into your, your career. Yeah. And 
suddenly the magic or the allure of the hobby loses its luster. Yeah, once you start bringing like your hobby as a career, you know, as Chris says, you start thinking about like profit margins and coasters and, and things like that. And it really sort of drains the magic out of it, as you were saying. And we mentioned Adam is back in the brick this episode as, I guess, the head chef. The first time he was here serving as head chef, it was sort of as a bet with hauling. It's not really established why he's working at the brick, but we do know that he's back in Sicily because Eve is having health problems, of course. He talks to Joel about this. Yeah, so Eve's going to have acupuncture treatment at... In Hunan, right? Yeah, in Hunan, which made me stop for like a heartbeat. I was like, did they say Wuhan? Oh. Like the place with the coronavirus? Yeah, it's like, topical. <laughs> the, this, as this uh, podcast is being recorded, uh, coronavirus is spreading and entering the United States. Yeah, and its point of origin seems to be from Wuhan, but not Hunan, China. Oh, different different uh, places. <laughs> oh, yeah, totally different. Could you understand Adam's Chinese in this scene? No, I couldn't because he's speaking Cantonese. I speak oh, right. Mandarin. Right, okay. And he even says himself that his Mandarin was a little bit sketchy, which is kind of odd because Mandarin is... Like the, the dominant the language. Two, or? It's the dominant one uh, in the whole region. Cantonese is mostly spoken in the rural regions. Mandarin would account for, oh gosh, off the top of my head, I would say like 85 to 90%. Just the majority, um, obviously. The majority of it speaks Mandarin. Now, that's not to say there isn't a lot of dialects spread throughout it, like Hong Kong dialect, mm-hmm. Dominese dialect, blah, 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 blah. All those are completely different. But yeah, I find it odd that he picked up Cantonese of all of them. Yeah, I you know, I guess that would point to Adam spending time maybe in rural areas of China, but of course as we know, Adam is uh, full of stories and it's hard to it's hard to know what's what's true and what's false. Adam is like the living personification of talent letting you do whatever you want. Cuz if he was not that talented, he would not have survived this long. He would have took a bullet to the skull. <laughs> somebody would have shot him. He'd be left for dead, but they needed his skills as a chef. Yeah, I mean, he's a very talented chef. He seems to be uh, very versed in just the world. Everything's secret and covert, as we find out in this episode. You know, just when you think he's, um, just when you think you've caught him in a lie, it turns out that he's he's like uncovered some major truth. Maybe maybe not like directly, but it's it's you know it's hard to call him out on a lie because somehow he's always got some little backup. Yeah, he's got some little contingency or something that allows him to seem like he's telling the truth. It just to me it seemed like in this entire episode he seemed extra. D- Can I say? D- I can can believe it, yeah. (laughs) Okay. Yeah, well, he just feels very self-important because Maurice is putting him in that sort of position. We'll get to it, but Maurice hires Adam to uh, write as an anonymous, I guess, columnist in the the Sicily uh, newspaper. What's the name of the Sicily newspaper, by the way? Yeah, I think it's called the Sicily News and World Telegram, which is a pretty fancy name for a town population of less than a thousand. That's true. Uh, so I'm actually just looking up the Sicily News and World Telegram and on the northernexposurefandom.com, apparently the first appearance of this newspaper is in season two, episode seven, the, the season finale, Slow Dance. Maggie is apparently reading this newspaper while sitting at the brick. Since we're on the topic, just speaking of newspaper choices, Ruthann prefers to read the Christian Science Monitor. Yeah. Which was interesting. I love it. Yeah. What, I don't know anything about this publication. Oh, I'm actually a big fan of Christian Science Monitor. So, but it and has nothing to do with, does it have anything to do with 
Christian science. No, despite its name, the Monitor isn't a religious theme paper at all, and it doesn't promote the doctrine of any patron church. But there is a daily religious article in every issue of the Monitor, but it's not okay. like, it's mostly a very positive article from what okay. I've been able to see. It's a publication that I've always really liked. It's garnered like seven Pulitzer Prizes, I want to say, wow. and some Peabody's. So it makes sense with Ruthann, who is a self-proclaimed atheist, though I think last episode we deemed her maybe closer to a agnostic theist. Yeah, an agnostic theist, I think. Yeah, in our appropriate. in our expertise, we don't really uh, we we've we've already said we're not theologians or anything of that <laughs> sort. But uh, yeah, so you know, it seems at least I, I don't know much about the Christian Science Monitor. I thought it was maybe outside of Ruthann's character to read it, but according to what you're telling me, it sounds like yeah, someone who describes himself as an atheist could still read the Christian Science Monitor. Yeah, it's one of my favorite publications to read. What about you? Do you have a particular publication that you read to get your info from? No, I don't have any print subscription to the news or anything like that. I guess the closest thing was when I was in middle school, I was subscribed to Spider-Man and uh, I think the Punisher and X-Men, you know, (laughs) different comic book series. (laughs) That's where you gained all your worldviews from? (laughs) Oh, no, just just my subscription plan, I guess. (laughs) I used to be subscribed to... National Geographic and Times Magazine. Oh, nice. Because when I was in middle school, I'm sure you remember this, they would always have these things where you have to sell a number of subscriptions. Oh, yeah. To like neighbors and stuff. And there was a discounted price for yourself. Oh, okay. So I was like, I'll get that. And like my family just never canceled it off of the credit card. Nice. So that's how they get you. I always just got that and read it. Do you have any back copies? Hopefully I do. I used to keep them in a cupboard right underneath the kitchen cabinet uh, before I left college. And I had one every single week. And I would say there was about like 450 magazines of the Times magazines. And I really hope my mother kept them. Well, I don't know. Next time you're home, you should should check on them. But so in this scene, you were talking about how Adam is sort of, uh, to use your term, in this episode, I think it's kind of funny that he's offended. Uh, you know, everyone is obviously sampling his food. Obviously, it's very good. This is Adam, of course. Uh, and I love how he's offended that Maggie is asking, she says, Oh, what is this flavor I'm tasting? Is it cilantro? And he just like blows up on her, basically saying, uh, He's like, Why are you asking me that? You want to try this at home? I devote my life to creating culinary masterpieces. You think I'd reduce that to a shopping list? I think it's a pretty funny attack on Mackie. Oh, God. Just someone just shoot him already. <laughs> just someone teach him manners. It's funny. So, I like him. Don't yeah, get me okay. wrong. I, I like to, the character of Adam. It's just he's that. He's a little rough around the edges. Yeah. If, if I met this person in real life, like if someone actually talked this manner, it's like that. No. <laughs> Uh, what else do we learn in this scene? We see that Maurice is sort of enraptured by Adam's flair for telling a grand story blown out of proportions. I can't even remember what he's saying or how he's delivering it, but I just remember the look on Maurice's face and that sort of reaction shot coverage. We learn that Joel is, or he was, 54th in his class, but it's a class of 140, a very competitive school or something like that. So... Eh, like not in the top third, but getting there. And then sort of the last thing I wanted to talk about in this scene is uh, something you brought up to me before we started recording. I think I think you kind of chuckled at this. The uh, 
Ed goes to the movies. Ed is now a movie writer. Yeah. He's going to be a contributing writer and he's got the best rating system. Yeah. Like it's bear claws. So he's got <laughs> one to four bear claws. Four, I'm presuming to be a perfect score. Yeah. Why he chose bear claws, I have no idea. Well, it's it couldn't be bear claws like the uh, like the pastry, you know, like the donut. Uh, he, Wait, know. I thought that's what it was. Oh, well, I thought he was talking like bear claws, like, you know, the Alaskan wilderness, oh like Jesse God, the Bear. That makes, <laughs> that makes way more sense. I didn't, oh my God. I honestly thought it was the pastries. It just went over your head. Well, but I mean, he could have said like is, moose antlers or like meese or something like that. Meese is the plural for moose, right? Uh, oh, absolutely. <laughs> I think I've just been watching too much Archer. They have a fascination with bear claws, the pastry. <laughs> All right. Well, okay, we've reached an interesting crossroads. As you said, like a lot of these plots sort of like move together and, and land in the same moments at the, at the same destination. Right now, we are in a scene with kind of like Chris's development and Adam and Maurice's development. What should we, what should we swing to now? Uh, yeah, let's continue with the Adam train. Yeah, so I think the next scene is sort of the shady meeting between Maurice and Adam. Of course, in the rain, Adam is on... A walk. Uh, I'm not actually sure where he's going. He's just walking around in the rain, and Maurice uh, drives alongside him, trying to get him to come into this uh, sort of private vehicle. It's just like a weird, shady meeting. Yeah, it looks like he's trying to solicit uh, a lady of the night. <laughs> yeah, I guess so. Uh, you know, there, there's references to the covert operative Deep Throat. Uh, you know, th- just things like that. It seems a lot bigger than what it actually is, but, uh, but yeah. Yeah. It seems that Maurice knows even from this encounter that he just wants Adam to spin some yarn for him. Like he knows that whatever he says might be outlandish, like a national Enquirer type of headline, but he's okay with it. He's like, this is, this is it. This is how I'm going to get my publication to start up. Right. It's like exactly what we were just talking about, sort of how Maurice is intrigued by Adam's stories. It doesn't matter if they're true or not. It's something that people would want to read. Of course, we talked about sort of Adam's ego here. He thinks he's a, sort of a target. You know, he's such a such an important person that he's a military and political target, perhaps. Lots of conspiracy going on. And, and of course, this is all framed in this shady meeting. But I love the end of the scene when Adam does agree to write for the Sicily News and World Telegram. He says, uh, obviously, the payment is going to be large. He's like, get out your checkbook, Maurice. But the the other ingredients that he needs, he says, I, I'm going to need cashews. I thought that was interesting. I guess maybe it's a writing snack, or I honestly don't know with Adam what he needs those cashews it's, for. Uh, it's part of his writer, man. Yeah. Part of his thing it's, in yeah, order to get right. him on board. He needs like a strange request. That's his strange yeah, request. That's true. You got to have, you have to have like that strange request because if if they don't complete your first strange request, then it means they didn't read the whole writer, right? Oh, yeah, absolutely. That's even uh, a little gag in Marvelous Ms. Maisel season three. Uh-huh. They need a strange thing on the writer. So I think they get like yellow teddy bears to all across the room, like a hundred yellow teddy bears in their room in every single hotel room they're in. God, what's the, there's like that famous band or musician who in their writer, it says all the M&Ms or it says just like a bowl full of M&Ms with all the green ones picked out or something. Yeah. Uh, is it Metallica? So I just looked it up. It was Van Halen. Uh, and yeah, as, as we were just saying, the idea behind the whole Eminem thing, it, it's not that they're so picky. 
It's just sort of one fail safe just to check to see if the venue actually read the writer and is going to follow through with your requests. If they'll take out all the green M&Ms, then it means they're listening to you and they'll do whatever you want, I guess. Yeah, they're actually reading the contracts. Even more on a tangential note, the screenwriters for Goodwill Hunting, Matt Damon and Ben Affleck, whenever they first wrote the script and they completed it, they were shopping it around to different studios to sell it to. And they included like a scene in the middle of the script that was a very heavy sex scene involving the two main characters (laughs) uh, who were both men and it was completely out of left field. Just because they're not like romantically involved in the movie, right? It's been a while since I've seen it, but... Oh, not at all. It was just, they they had to be like outlandish. Something strange or or just off uh, tone maybe. (laughs) Yeah, and most of the studios didn't comment on that scene until their final buyer that they went to, he said, I love the script, but that scene in the middle... Uh, you guys got to take that out. And they're like, oh, okay, he finally, he actually read it. It was a test. Uh, also on Adam's writer, Eberhard Faber, Black Wings. We've kind of talked about this pencil on the podcast before. It was the episode Spring Break. Ed is sort of playing detective and he figures out that Chris is a thief because of the way, somehow because of the way he chews his number two pencil. And I think you asked me what kind of pencil I prefer. You know, I, I'm not a, pencil aficionado or a pencil snob at all, but I do have a Palomino Blackwing 602, which is a recreation of this pencil that Adam is talking about. This pencil is very specific, the Eberhard Faber Blackwing. It was in production from 1934 to 1988. So even at the point of this episode, these would have been uh, rarities, you know, to find. After 1988, the pencil was turned over to Faber-Castell and then later to Sanford until it was finally discontinued in 1998. The pencil that we were talking about on the podcast uh, was brought into production in 2012, sort of like a recreation of the Blackwing 602, the Palomino Blackwing. Mm, Vintage pencils. Yeah, I mean, they're just like soft lead, very nice eraser, very nice feel. The finish on the pencil is very nice. I don't know how to describe it. And apparently famous writers like Steinbeck wrote with the Blackwing, Obviously, Adam has lots of requests. So that's where it leads to the montage scene. And we see all the citizens of Sicily are just reading it like hotcakes. Yeah. And it's talking about trees that are talking. Yeah. Trees that talk. I think that's the headline. Who says I've read fairy tales with better documentation? Is that Joel? That's Joel. Yeah. Yeah. Like, of course, Joel, the outsider of the town, will be the first to call out the bullshit that Maurice is trying to pump out to everybody. You know, I think you're right, because Joel is an outsider, so he's the first one to call it out. But I'm not trying to say Sicily believes this newspaper, but at least they're maybe a little more accepting, at least in the case of Maggie. So Maggie is actually, you know, part of the feud with Joel in this episode is that Maggie sort of believes that the trees are talking. I mean, they're not talking, but they're making sounds, perhaps. Yeah, she thinks that, you know, they're not communicating verbally or having conversations, but that there's something down in the molecular level in which their, I guess their energy is being transferred over to another state of being. (laughs) And through that concept, that's their quote unquote communication to everybody, to which then I would have to say everything speaks then. Like every living matter to that degree speaks using Maggie's logic, but 
I think simply all it means is that whatever it is, Maggie has bought in hook, line, and sinker. Yeah. Doesn't matter what the headlines of the newspaper says. It just seems like Joel saying, power of suggestion, she now believes what the newspaper is pumping out. Exactly. And uh, I kind of like the the scene in which Maggie first sort of, I guess, discovers what she believes uh, is tree speech, you know? So it's all sort of photographed in one shot. Maggie's on a nature hike surrounded by trees, and she's sort of photographed in like a medium wide angle. So we see uh, most, most of her body, if not head to toe. And she stops in her tracks, looks up, and calls out, hello? And the camera lifts up, you know, kind of tilts up, leaving Maggie behind. And we look up towards the canopy of trees. And then whenever the camera starts to tilt back down, no cuts have been made. But when we land on Maggie, this time she's in close-up. So essentially what's happening is as soon as the camera leaves Maggie, the actress walks closer to camera into a new position, a second position. And then when the camera tilts back down, this time she's really close to the lens or at least much closer to the lens than she was before. So it's a cool effect because it seems like there's a cut that's happening because we sort of change distance between, you know, medium shot to a close-up shot. But it's, uh, in fact, it's just the actor sort of moves and this edit is, uh, I mean, there's no edit, but it's what seems like a transition is this tilt up and down. And um, I guess we should also mention that the focus uh, doesn't seem to change. At least I couldn't tell any rack focus that was happening. So they must have been, uh, you know, sort of in a deep focus, wide shot. So when she gets closer to the camera, she still remains in focus. Yeah, I thought that was actually a really interesting shot, how it moved up and down, like you were saying, and it doesn't look like there was any editing being done. And it's an unusual shot, I would have to say, for television. I don't think that happens very often. Yeah, it's a very interesting shot. And, you know, I, I sort of broke it down technically, but in short, what's happening is we sort of see Maggie in this space. And then when we come back down to her, we're much closer to her sort of in her mind. So we're sort of projecting what her thoughts might be spinning around in her head. Oh, I get it then. Okay, so you're saying that after examining the woods and like having a camera being tilted up and coming back down, we're closer to her, therefore meaning we're closer to her own thoughts. Like we're, we're finally realizing what she's thinking. Yeah, it's sort of like we get to experience what she experiences. Then when we return to her, we're a little closer. So we can only guess as to what she's thinking. And, you know, we're kind of fed, oh, that's clever. fed the same... Uh, line as the newspaper, the trees talk or whatever. Uh, at least that's my interpretation. I think you, it's open to a lot of different interpretation. No, no, I think that's great. You were talking about, you know, non-traditional types of cinematography for television. You know, this is an example, perhaps. And there's actually a shot in this episode that harkens back to a shot in A Hunting We Will Go. It's this shot that you picked out that you liked so much. It was... Uh, when Joel is about to shoot down a, what kind of bird was it? Grouse? It was a grouse. Yeah. So he's about to shoot this bird and the camera does a very quick dolly in. Well, we get the same exact shot, except this time it's when Maggie is about to split a log for firewood. The camera dollies in real fast and Maggie puts down her axe and puts her ear to the tree stump as if listening 
She feels a little guilty. Yeah. What is the idea behind those types of shots when the dolly is swinging to the actors to capture that fluid motion? Because I know that she's mimicking it with her own actions where she's coming down and listening to the tree stump. Is that meant to indicate just movement in general? So, as I said, I think it's all open to interpretation, but some explanations could be essentially whatever the camera is doing is it's guiding your eye. It's showing you what to pay attention to. Like, this is what the director says is important to tell the story. The second thing is, in the example of the camera dollying in really fast, like when Joel is about to shoot the grouse or when Maggie is about to split the wood, those moments are meant to feel, the director wants you to feel very dynamic, very powerful. But the image of someone just pulling a trigger is not that exciting. I mean, maybe a gun exploding is, you know, like the bullet coming out of a gun with some muzzle flare. That's kind of exciting. But Otherwise, Joel is just standing there and the only thing that moves is his finger. So by pushing the camera in really fast on him, that gives it a little bit of dynamism and a little little bit of energy and power. Same with Maggie. You know, essentially her action is just putting an ax down and I guess swiftly putting her ear to the tree stump. But still, it just gives a little extra energy to these moments. Yeah, I love those shots. Yeah, I mean, it's not totally uncommon to see this in television, but definitely a breath of fresh air when it comes to like sitcoms or something like that. That's not to say that Northern Exposure is a sitcom, but it seems to be roped in that category sometimes. So here's a little fact that I learned from this episode. In one of the next scenes, Maurice and Adam meet up in the freezer at the brick. They're trying to go somewhere private where no one can listen. You know, Maurice is trying to get Adam to write another story. So he pulls out a little tape recorder and tells Adam to start dictating. However, before Adam starts, Maurice like sort of rubs the, he cups the recorder and like rubs it. And he says that the batteries are freezing up. Did you know that batteries could freeze up? Is that a thing? I didn't know that either. I'm assuming that he has like the lid being exposed. Well, we live, you know, in the South, so we're not familiar too much with freezing temperatures. But this is what I found online. So batteries at freezing or below freezing temperatures tend to experience a drop in performance or runtime or both. Sometimes cold temperatures can cause alkaline batteries like our AA batteries to burst and leak and rechargeable batteries tend to perform even worse in uh, cold temperatures. Now, I don't know too much about batteries, but I guess the idea is that alkaline batteries do utilize a water-based component inside of them which must be why when you reach freezing temperature or below freezing temperature, that component starts to change physically and, I guess, affect uh, performance. Okay, so basically just drastic weather changes then. Because I know that in the South, where we live at, it can heavily affect the car batteries that we have. Like, they can't Mm. last as long as they would in the North. Yeah, if anyone from the North or from freezing climates can... uh, can say yes or no whether this is a thing, like if you rub the batteries to warm them up like Maurice does, or I'm guessing what's more likely is you just uh, chuck out the batteries if they're frozen. (laughs) So after he dictates some more articles for Maurice to publish, the next morning we see that Ed's delivered the papers. Ed's crashing at Maurice's place. He's exhausted. (laughs) He's been everywhere trying to deliver the papers. And Adam actually comes and ambushes him. And uh, threatens him, like with a knife. Yeah, I think it's funny because he's got a chef's knife pointed at him, but he doesn't refer to 
Maurice's anatomy as human anatomy, more as like cuts of beef or something. What does he say? Like, I've got this knife pointed between your prime rib and your sirloin or something. I don't know. Uh, the brisket. Brisket. It's at this point that Adam sort of rolls out this whole conspiracy of, you know, what I guess doesn't sound too strange in 2020 times, just the idea that the possibility that your privacy is uh, not as private as you might think. Yeah, he's going off how anyone can spy on anything. Like uh, your own private thoughts or your private domain are no longer within your own control. And he's going kind of crazy in Maurice's place. And it occurs to me that Adam seems like an individual that needs to have his control. Like he can't bear the thought of not having control. So the idea that somebody else could have information on him is a form of control to him. Anybody that can pinpoint his background or where he's been to, that is something that is coercive to him. So I think that explains why he goes kind of berserk in Maurice's place, but also kind of explains his whole character as a whole and possibly why he acts super because if he acts that way, he no one else can hold it against him. Like that's that's just him at that point. Like he doesn't have to bend to anyone else's politeness or to have manners. Yeah, I see where you're going with that. It's it's sort of like the idea that he sort of lives off the grid in the wilderness and doesn't really have a real identity. Like for years, the people of Sicily thought he was Bigfoot, you know. But this is his form of control. Like he doesn't want to exist in uh this world where he feels like he's got no control, I guess, and he's being spied on. Maybe he's just massively paranoid. But I was bringing it up because I do think there's a little bit of validity in his claims. They sound crazy for the 1990s, but I think today you could find sort of a comparison to each of the examples that he lists. Like he says, listening devices that can pick up a caterpillar sneezing two miles away. Sounds pretty crazy, but if you think about the network of cell phones across the world, you know, if these microphones are on, okay, sounds very conspiracy theory, but, you know, Alexa in anyone's living room. Next, he says, they know what you had for breakfast two days ago. I mean, even if you don't believe that someone is like spying on you having breakfast, a lot of times people just take photos of their breakfast and post it online. Like you're giving away that information. Oh, yeah. You can also just access the credit card information. True. Just see like, oh, he bought from... Starbucks or, yeah. Yeah, like Starbucks. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) And then the last thing he says, they know what car you're going to buy three years from now. Uh, You know, like the idea that advertising is so targeted, it's not so much about convincing you to buy something, but it's more about predicting your spending habits and exploiting where you might make a large purchase and how to maybe influence that. This is all very, you know, maybe diving in too deep, but I guess that's our job, overanalyze, but definitely sounds like conspiracy theory, but there's some similarities in today's time. For your last part about the car that you're going to purchase in three years, I thought that just simply meant that they could look at your internet history and saw that you were looking up, I don't know, like a 2020 Ford F-150 and a car is a large purchase, so it would take you about three years to save up the money for that. Yeah, so that's a very direct, obvious choice, but I think you could even insinuate indirectly uh, that certain choices of what you're browsing online, you know, might not be a direct result of what you do buy in three years, but it could point towards what you might buy. Mm, yeah, I like your take on it. <laughs> I don't know. The more I talk about it, the more I feel like a conspiracy theorist. So that's that's as far as I'll draw the comparisons between <laughs> Adam's predictions and today. 
Yeah, it's a healthy dose of skepticism. But I mean, have you seen how YouTube search algorithms work? Those things are <laughs> insane. Like you're not too far off. <laughs> I used to have a joke where someone in high political office used to say that Obama was spying on us through our microwaves. And if that was true, <laughs> then I am screwed because I need my microwave much more than I need my privacy. <laughs> so next stop for this plot is Joel confronting Maurice and realizing, uh, you know, Joel figures it out that Maurice has hired Adam. And uh, I love what he says. You made a deal with Adam? Oh, my God. Calm down, Joel. Hey, you let the genie out of the bottle. The man is a certifiable paranoid psychotic. Maybe so, but he does spend one heck of a yarn, doesn't he? You can't believe a word he says. Y you know that, don't you? Doesn't matter what I believe. It matters what the public believes. Meaning what? Meaning you give them what they want. That's the role of journalism. No, Maurice, that's the role of professional wrestling. If only Joel would know how things would turn out for journalism in the year 2020. Yeah, I feel like this episode, I mean, is was relevant at the time, I think, even, and is still relevant today. Just sort of the idea of sensationalist uh, journalism is sort of what wins out in the end. I mean, it's always been here. Yeah. Like, we've had it since, I mean, shoot, when the printing press was invented. Like, there had to have been one bozo that was like, oh, I can do whatever I want. And, it, <laughs> you know, kind of escalated even more toward the 20th century. And now we would say that it's at, like, maximum overdrive, or at least what <laughs> appears to be maximum overdrive in the year 2020. But, yeah, to a degree, Maurice is right. Like, that's what sells. That's what's sexy. People want to hear those headlines. That's the thing that they're going to buy, and that's going to keep his publication alive. But on the other end, of course, Joel is being the voice of reason, saying like, no, that's how you get a populace that's been polluted. Exactly. So there's just a couple more scenes in this plot line, but I think before we wrap it up, I did want to bring up, have you watched the deleted scenes for this episode? Yeah, I watched the scene where Joel is talking with Maurice and Maurice is uh, getting shut down by the... Justice Department or something? Yeah. Yeah, the Justice Department. That's the scene, yeah. It's pretty cool. It starts in, again, like sort of like a wide shot as Maurice uh, walks away from a what looks to be like some government men in like a dark car. And he joins Joel and they sort of have this uh, long dialogue all in this continuous take as they cross the street. And there's a great orchestration of extras and cars. And imagine it would be sort of like a long shot. Like a, a, it would take a lot of time to shoot this uh, scene. So it's kind of a bummer that it was cut from the final episode. But as they continue talking, they come closer to the camera. They kind of turn around the bend and walk towards the camera. And uh, the only thing I really wanted to touch on, apart from the amazing cinematography, background extras, and, and sort of the orchestration of the shot, was we learned that Maurice has sort of misinterpreted the themes and, and ending of the movie Citizen Kane. He sort of references this to Joel, and Joel is astounded that Maurice has got it all so horribly wrong. Yeah, I think that's actually really interesting too. I particularly like the idea of misinterpreting ideas and propelling those into your own ideas in order to justify live your own life. Or live your own, yeah, yeah, or to justify things of their own. I think like teenagers in particular are really big on that. Like they'll take an idea and they'll interpret it in their own manner and it comes out the other side as some sort of result that's a 
bastardization of what the original one was, but that's natural. Like that's fine. That's the way it's supposed to be. And through that own bastardization, it comes out to their own original views. So in a way, Maurice's misinterpretation of Citizen Kane leads to his own worldviews, however misguided they may be. Yeah, I guess I would say it's it's not just teenagers. I think everyone is entitled to their interpretation. Uh, but I just thought it was really funny because, well, we've had Maurice compared to the president before on this podcast. I think one of our guests uh, this season thought it was really funny that Maurice dropped Donald Trump's name. But uh, here's another comparison. I just found out recently that Donald Trump's favorite movie is Citizen Kane. And in an interview, similarly, it seems like he may have misinterpreted elements of the film, uh, just as Maurice. That's so crazy that his favorite film is Citizen Kane. Like, I understand that Citizen Kane is lauded as the best film ever created, but I just thought he would have picked a different movie. I mean, it makes sense. It's, yeah, like you said, I think everyone agrees. Most everyone says Citizen Kane is the best movie of all time, you know? And uh, yeah, it's about sort of like a rich tycoon, you know, so... I can see the comparison. But yeah, you know it's, it's, what, it's a tragic uh, movie. Do you know what Bill Clinton's favorite movie is? Ooh, what is it? The Police Academy film. <laughs> it's pretty awesome. <laughs> I know. And the best thing is that I heard this in an interview once. Uh, he used to show them all the time to his daughter, Chelsea Clinton. What? Because the- <laughs> he wanted to show his favorite movie. And it turns out that Chelsea, she hated them. But then Bill didn't care. He was like, all right, well, we're watching Police Academy 2. As if that was the solution. It was like, let's keep watching the Police Academy film. You'll like like it more, yeah. No, I mean, that that sounds like a normal dad thing. You know, very dad. Just like pick a cheesy comedy and that's your favorite movie. But hey, you know, to each his own. Okay, let's do the last scene in this plot line, which is a very good ending. It's, It's the last scene in this episode. Yeah, so it turns out either by coincidence or they simply stumbled upon the truth. It turns out that there's been some pollution that's been going on in the forest of Sicily. Yeah. Therefore, you know, making the trees be affected in a manner that's out of their natural order. So they're communicating to people that things aren't all right. Yeah, it turns out another publication breaks the story. And, uh, you know, this is after Maurice and Adam have had sort of a falling out. I guess, dang, we can't really get to the end of the episode yet because there is also the scene when they have the falling out. I just want to touch on really quickly because it's um, almost comes down to like a fist fight between Maurice and Adam. And I just wanted to ask you, who do you think would win, Maurice or Adam? Are we applying prison rules to this or (laughs) there's some sort of like, you know, standards involved? Uh, Really just, you know, hand-to-hand combat, I guess. What would you say? (sighs) Oh... I would say Maurice has training. Yeah, he's like a a military man. Yeah, he knows that. Adam looks like he learned from the streets. Adam, you know, as we said, he's been compared to Bigfoot. You know, a lot of Sicily thought he was Bigfoot for a while. But just his attitude seems like he's just a lot more bark than bite, you know? That's, yeah, I think that's one way of looking at it. I think that that can be an answer. I'm going to give you a non-committal answer. I'm going to say that it's basically coming down to unconventional versus conventional, like a man (laughs) that learns some strange tricks to fight into another man that's like been properly trained. And when you put them both up against each other, like anything could happen. It's apples and bananas, I guess. Yeah. Well, they don't end up fighting before they 
get into it. I guess Adam says he hears something in the distance and somehow he escapes. Yeah, I guess it's just to show the mysticism of Adam's ways. Now he's able to disappear in the drop of a hat. Very mysterious. Anyway, so the end of this episode, the story was broke by another publication. You know, return to the status quo, the Sicily... What is the name of that paper? I think it could News just call it Sicily. News and World paper. Telegram. Yes, that's it. The Sicily News and World Telegram is back to just being sort of like the doggy do paper, you know, to pick up. The, <laughs> <laughs> that's how okay. it's represented at the beginning in of the episode. The, in that man's defense, he didn't, Maurice didn't know if he already read the newspaper and he was True. done with it. Yeah, you don't like save a newspaper and you don't frame like every single yeah. newspaper, but. Like unless, even if it was like, I don't know, Le Monde, some sort of highly prestigious <laughs> publication. After you're done reading it, it goes in the trash bin in a way. Like who cares if you use it to, you know, help pick up dog poo. Right. Okay, so even after this is all broke, Maggie has finally brought Joel out to the woods because she just wants to show him the, you know, her experience. And I like uh, the interaction here. You're right. I'm an idiot. No, come on, wait, wait. You know, I have a very meaningful experience in the woods, and for some stupid reason, I choose to share it with you, and you just can't resist trashing it, can you? Okay, okay, don't take it so personally. Look, I'm, I'm sorry, all right? I'm just, I am not a child of nature. I am a child of asphalt and toxic fumes, and I've never listened to trees before, all right? I mean, what, what, what am I supposed to do? Just listen. I really enjoyed this scene. And I like what Maggie has to say, how she had this meaningful experience, however strange it may be. And Joel is just kind of raining down on her parade on this. That reminds me a lot of reading literature and how you can find symbolism in things that it maybe might not have been the author's pure intention to have. Or it might have been. Who knows? You can never really know what the author wrote. And in Maggie's case, she's finding meaning between this newspaper publication claiming that the trees could speak and she's having an epiphany. She's coming together with nature or at the very least, her thoughts are being realigned in a new manner. And in literature, a lot of times you can read something and you'll find that, oh, like this thing represents this aspect. I find that to be very meaningful to me and therefore I believe it's true. Like I can derive and I can choose what things have further weight than what the author originally designed it to be so or what other people think it should be so. So I'm kind of on Team Maggie here in deciding that, you know, it doesn't really matter how she got there. It's that she's there. Yeah. I'm going to piggyback on what you said too because I think it's interesting that Maggie has been able to interpret something out of just sort of feeling it and letting it come to her in a way. You know, she's expecting it, but... It's hard to explain and it's hard to communicate that to Joel, you know? That's kind of funny because this whole discussion is about how trees communicate and the ways they communicate are not the ways humans communicate, I guess, at least in this uh, dialogue that Maggie and Joel are having. But this sort of ties into the scene right before it, which we're going to get to. It's uh, a quote that Chris has. He says, life in the slow lane. And to me, that sort of spoke to this scene. You know, just listen. Don't try so hard. Don't try to study something. Just let it happen. And I feel like a lot of Northern Exposure does this. I'm specifically recalling the episode Aurora Borealis when everyone is staring at Chris's sculpture. And, you know, 
it's titled the Aurora Borealis. You know what to look for, but you know, you might not see the same Aurora Borealis that someone else sees. It's a very abstract sculpture. And so I feel like there's a lot of that abstraction in a lot of Northern Exposure episodes. And here's another great example. Yeah, I think that Northern Exposure has a unique talent of being able to show how the perspective of one person is completely different from the perspective of another individual. So however way that you're examining things, it could be much more different even though you're essentially the same thing, you're the same human beings, two different completely results though. Yeah. And what's beautiful about Northern Exposure and Sicily is that so many different strokes, but uh, you know, everyone is a community and it's such a strong community of just different types of people. It's a great example for our world. You know, it's like, we're all so different, but we can, we can be together as, as a community, you know? What is that quote that says like, there is no them, there's only facets of us. Yeah, I'm not sure what that, who that's attributed to, but that's a that's a super applicable for this case. Oh, yeah, no, it's from John Green. Ah, the acclaimed author and uh, YouTube vlogger, John Green. <laughs> that sounds like such a pejorative. <laughs> like, no, it's like, but he's ah, the great celebrity. author and uh, YouTuber. <laughs> <laughs> um, so the last part of this episode is uh, Joel, you know, as you heard in the soundbite, he is uh, submitting. He wants to actually hear and try, give it his best try. And so Maggie, you know, gives him the instruction. Let's just uh, wait around for a little bit and see what happens. If uh, if nothing happens, we'll we'll move a little bit further and and then wait then. And uh, I, I I had to time it. The last like 35, 40 seconds of this episode is just a static shot of Joel and Maggie sitting in silence. And, uh, you know, that doesn't sound like a long period of time, but on screen, if you're just sitting there in silence, super effective. It just really draws you into that moment and that stillness. And it's almost a form of uh, meditation. You know, whenever you try to meditate, it's like you have to try to clear your mind, be still. And you're watching this TV show that, you know, it spends the last half minute or more of its runtime on nothing. You know, it's it's beautiful. Yeah, it's an unconventional ending, but for this episode, I thought it was a great fit. Really solid ending, I think, yeah. All right, so I think we can circle back to Chris. We last left him at the Brick. It was his first night giving out free beer. Uh, what can you tell us, Charles? What happens here in this episode? Yeah, so basically Chris goes through various phases where he believes that, oh, this is the change that I need. Like, I need to be realigning my karma need to get into the business with hauling need to be serving out free pizza and free drinks to everybody which is a pretty you know good <laughs> business strategy whenever you're trying to introduce new management you oh, want people yeah. to realize that there is somebody new but i think that chris realizes that he's not one for this lifestyle and i think what's really important in this episode is how chris says in the very end hey thanks for giving me the space to just work out my problems yeah like the thing that beautiful. he needed was just time in order for him to reflect. And it didn't matter what it was. And in this case, it was just him running a business. With that, he's able to come to terms and be like, oh, okay, this is what I'm actually about. Yeah, he realizes it's not, you know, it sounds like beautiful, but it's uh, it's one of his passions, but not his uh, calling, you know? He says something about, I think you quoted it to me earlier, it's like some of us are owners and some of us are renters. And he figured out that, He's, he's not an owner. He wants out. 
But uh, no, so you did just mention, uh, you know, it's a good business strategy when you're introducing new management to, you know, have some freebies and stuff. The ptarmigan pizza I thought was pretty interesting. I wonder if there there's actually ptarmigan meat on that pizza or if it's just maybe uh, the colors of a ptarmigan. I, I wonder what that is. I thought it was the meat was the way I saw That's that That's what scene. I figured, yeah, because it's pretty gamey when you go up there in Sicily. You know, I think the first episode, uh, what do they say? Moose burger or caribou dog, you know? I always think about that. What else? There's T.S. Eliot night, free nickel beers for the first 50 customers who can recite the opening lines of the love song of J. Alfred Prifrick. Yeah, it's let us... <clears throat> oh, you got it. Yeah, let us go then, you and I. That's the opening lines in English. I think proof rock is in French. Okay. Oh, no, never mind. I'm uncultured. Uh, that's Italian. <laughs> but yeah, you, so you get the picture. He's trying out a lot of new things. And in fact, we learned sort of in one of the last scenes with Chris and Hauling, they are actually making more money, you know? So it's, you know, Hauling is not really enjoying the changes and, uh, Hauling doesn't realize it, but Chris is not really enjoying what being an owner is doing to him. Uh, so they kind of come together in, in sort of this uh, this last scene together where they admit to each other that it's just not working out and they, they decide to split. And there's something that's kind of hard to put into words, but what's so beautiful about this plot line in this episode, and it happens in the scenes with Chris and Hauling, just their chemistry and their energy together I'm thinking about the scene when Holling asks Chris to be a partner, you know. You can tell that Holling is not in a great position and it's not easy for him to ask. But then again, he's not asking for a loan, you know, but he's forfeiting part of his um part of himself, I guess. You know, the brick is a large part of of Holling. And then in this last scene when um Chris decides to split off from the brick, he doesn't expect all the money back all at once, right? He says, uh, what does he say? I must have blown $1,500 on free drinks the first night, so we'll take that off the top and just pay me when you can. So there's like not even any interest, you know? It's super generous. And uh, I also love that he says, I'd rather have my money helping a friend than breeding in a bank somewhere. And that thing that I'm trying to express, it's kind of hard to put in words, but friendship is amazing. And this show knows it. And it's really capturing just this element of people depending on each other and caring for each other and, and just looking out for each other. Yeah, I agree. I think this is the first time in which a character is dependent on another for financial aid. Definitely, like, yeah. That's something that the show hasn't delved into. And it's so nice and so comfy, you know, in the end. <laughs> it's not dirty yeah. and sad. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, never lend your friends money. <laughs> It's, that would just your relationship's going to turn, turn out a weird like this weird way. <laughs> it's not like never like Sicily, but I think you know this represents uh, the best of all possibilities. Like it can be this way. I, I love that they represent it in this light. Okay, so the last little bit that I'd like to touch on before we leave this plot line and toss to our guest is um, this monologue that Chris has, sort of in the middle of the episode. It's always stuck with me over the years. I, I remembered it fondly whenever I watched this episode again. And I always forget that it comes from this episode. But um, I don't think I can play it because there's music in the background. But uh, bear with me and I'll, I'll read it out. Rain usually makes me feel mellow. Curl up in the corner time. Slow down. Smell the furniture. 
Today it just makes me feel wet. What is it about possessing things? Why do we feel the need to own what we love? And why do we become jerks when we do? We've all been there. You want something to possess it. By possessing something, you lose it. You finally win the girl of your dreams. The first thing you do is change her. The little things she does with her hair, the way she wears her clothes, or the way she chews her gum. Pretty soon, what you like, what you changed, what you don't like, blends together like a watercolor in the rain. And it's just sort of like a little romantic musing and beautiful imagery of rain and watercolor. Again, as we said, there's so much rain in this episode. And I think it's just real rain. Like I think the week that they chose to shoot this episode, it was raining a lot. Like the scene with uh, Holling and Chris at the end that we are just talking about, it's raining in the background. Uh, this scene in K-Bear, that might be studio rain because I think they shot that in a studio. I'm not sure. But mm. I think there's a lot of real rain in this episode. Yeah, I think that rain plays a heavy role into this episode in the fact that rain symbolically represents cleansing. So yeah. maybe this is the thing to wash off Chris's funk. Like he needs to be cleansed of this. Yeah, that's true. Because he does begin with that sort of, that funk. He's in the blues. He's in, he's in a rut. And, uh, you know, he does come out, you know, maybe not better than before, but having realized something new. So yeah, better than before. <laughs> Once again, I'll touch on part of his closing monologue. He says, life in the slow lane as it should be. So he's content to, uh, to be where he is. He doesn't have to do something crazy and, you know, do something Yeah, he big. doesn't have to go like 90 miles per hour pass <laughs> up the other guy. <laughs> All right, well, now is time to introduce our guest. So on this podcast, we like to expand the reach of Northern Exposure by introducing the show to someone who has never seen it before. Today's guest is my friend Danny, who... I've actually tried to get on the podcast a couple times, sort of as like a last minute addition. I think I gave him a good episode, but I guess we'll just have to see what he says. Lee, when you first invited me to watch an episode of Northern Exposure and review the show, I was really expecting your run-of-the-mill 90s comedy drama. I was not expecting the remarkably anti-humanist narratives and unflinching critique of the modern man that, quite frankly, have rocked me, a humanist and a modern man, to the core. In the opening credits, we see a lone and out-of-place moose wandering in the empty and desolate streets of a city. The moose, a symbol of nature, walks aimlessly through a world of man that has no place for it, its gaze falling multiple times upon the mounted antlers that seem to adorn every wall in sight. This interaction, I think, symbolizes that the only real space for nature in man's world is as something of a trophy or decoration, stripped of its natural majesty and void of life, dead and conquered. And that's just the opening credits. Now, I do want to try and keep this as quick and concise as I can, but I would be remiss if I didn't at least attempt to touch on all the critiques this episode has with humanity and the modern world. So please forgive me if this seems a little rehearsed, but I didn't want to miss anything important. We see the first critique in the interactions between Adam and Maurice. The scathing critique of news media opens on a newspaper struggling for readership amidst its own critiques of its entirely accurate and factual, but very boring content. And throughout the episode, we watch as the paper journeys down a road of alternative facts and opinion-based journalism, very much like the world we find ourselves in today. And as amazingly pathetic as this storyline is, it's only the beginning of what this episode is packing. Between Adam and Joel, we see another scathing critique of humanity play out, the argument of nature versus science. With Adam screaming and shouting about the evils of modern technology and modern society, and Joel, a learned man, a, a man of science, a doctor even, continuously denouncing Adam's views as lies and paranoia. 
Throughout their interactions, we witness a scathing review of man's intelligence and a questioning of the technologies it has released on the world, with a heavy suggestion that they will ultimately be our doom, a concept the scientific mind refuses to hear out. Meanwhile, played out between Chris, a local radio man, and Holling, a local bar owner, we see a rather comprehensive, if not damning, examination of capitalism and its effect on the world of man, seeming to suggest not only that capitalism is flawed, but that the very concept of ownership itself is problematic. Beginning with Holling in desperate need of money to pay his taxes, already a loaded topic, we watch as he is forced to sell a portion of his most prized possession, his bar, to Chris, the rich man who says himself he has more money than he knows what to do with. Through Chris, we see the show suggesting that the constant push of capitalism to produce profits and return on investments is toxic. That ownership, on its own, perverts the owner. As Chris becomes an owner, he begins to think like an owner, losing touch not just with himself, but also the natural world, shown most clearly with Chris's change of opinion regarding a ram's head in the bar. The ram's head, a symbol of nature's place in man's world, suddenly seems out of place to Chris. It didn't used to bother me, but now, Chris says as he eyeballs it, and what the show is saying is not just that capitalism does not value nature, but that it is inherently dangerous to it as well. Capitalism, it seems, sees the forest neither for its trees or as a forest, but merely as a resource to be owned and destroyed for capital. Chris attempts to regain his natural balance with the world by leaving the bar and renouncing his ownership completely. But in so doing, puts Holling into the one thing he was attempting to get out of from the very beginning, a debt. This I find very telling as a hardworking man cast into debt by the system tries desperately for an entire episode to escape and can't. What seems like a victory at first is not only a loss, but upon closer inspection, a fight that cannot be won. And also, Shelly's his wife? I thought she just worked at the bar and then she came down in some episode talking about like, oh, when are you going to come back up to bed? Like, they're married? He's obviously in his 60s and not like Jude Law. Like, he looks it, you know? And he's not rich, obviously. I don't, I have a lot more questions about their relationship. I don't know, like, does that get answered? Do, do they get together in the show? Or does the show just start off with you, expe like, expecting you to believe? I... You know what, Holling's wife aside, the show was rather bleak for my liking, ultimately ending in the discovered chemical spill, and Joel trying in vain to hear and listen to that which he and his learning have torn him from, nature. In his own words, Joel says, I am not a child of nature, I am a child of asphalt and toxic fumes, and I think this is how the show feels about humanity. As it fades to black, we see Joel sitting in the forest, a look of bored confusion on his face, sitting in the right place but unable to hear the screams of nature. All in all, this show is nothing like what I expected, and a bit too bleak and ultimately too hopeless for my liking, but it has given me a whole lot to think about, and I would certainly recommend it's worth at least an occasional watch by everyone. I can only assume that the rest of this show is as loaded, bleak, and thought-provoking as this episode certainly was. All right, so that was Danny's take on this episode. I got to say, I really appreciate his due diligence. The fact that he, you know, he had a lot to say and he wanted to fit it in a short amount of time for us. So he sort of scripted it out for himself, but I really appreciate that. It was very well-formed and collected thoughts. Yeah, I enjoyed that too. I, I like that I could hear the pieces of paper. 
when he flipped them <laughs> to go yeah. to his next page of thoughts. <laughs> and I have to say that he's the first guest, at least to recent memory, that actually did a deep dive analysis onto the title cards. Oh, yeah. Like, like what does what is the meaning behind the title cards? Because everyone yeah. seems to notice the moose in the music. It's very, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Identifiable. It's very signature for the show. It's like, that's kind of what people seem to take away from it. Even though we don't really see any moose in the show proper, it's just what people remember about it. Yeah, and I like what he has to say about the moose, how it's mostly just nature, and it it's encroaching upon man's domain and is just wandering throughout the town. Yeah, I thought he had some really spot-on analysis of sort of uh, the representation of nature, as you say, and man's separation from nature, sort of like... Uh, I think he he keeps drilling in capitalism as a as a reason for. <laughs> I, I love it, man. I really I think this episode, I think this show in general, this episode in particular, is begging for analysis. And I think Danny did. I I think he did an even better job than, than we've done. Yeah, I thought he did a great job on it. Even though I don't agree with <laughs> yeah. some of his points on that, <laughs> and. I like that his analysis went in the direction that we wouldn't have analysis it towards. Yeah. Because I, I want to say that both of us wouldn't have looked toward the tone of throwing away capitalism or going against it uh-huh. or things of that nature. Um, so I like that he brought that perspective into it that I wouldn't have caught on myself. Yeah. yeah of course. Definitely. And okay, let's talk a little bit about his analysis, right? So I I thought it was pretty well put, the idea that Capitalism and ownership, um, you know, ownership on its own perverts the owner. That's a quote from Danny. And, you know, this is represented by Chris. Uh, that's basically his whole sort of uh, takeaway. Chris's takeaway in this episode is when you own something, it changes you. Uh, I love that Danny points out, you know, Chris is losing touch with himself and the natural world represented by the ram's head in the brick in the bar. That is is incredible. You know, it's it, that scene for me was just to show that Chris is trying to find things that he wants to change. But if you really wanted to analyze it really deep, you could say that it's in a way another sig- signifier of of nature and Chris separate Chris's separation from it. Yeah, I really like that analysis as well. That's one I did not catch at all, and I thought that in order to represent nature being put into a cage or being put on display or something just out of its natural habitat, yeah. which is this ram's hat being put in a bar where it would not belong, that's what makes Chris come to his senses. That's the signal piece. So great catch on that. Yeah, and, and the same way you were saying, like uh, putting nature in a cage or in its in an unnatural environment, something like that, he relates the moose in the opening sequence. It's like, why is this moose just walking around Main Street? And I, I want to say I, I'm trying to like stifle laughter, but I really do think it's such a clever analysis of this episode. Uh, so props to Danny. <laughs> yeah, great analysis. But again, uh, like I disagree with him on being like, uh, like taxes are already a loaded topic. <laughs> yeah, I, I've always been the person and I don't know whether it's because of the thing that I studied or just my... Because um, you're, you studied upbringing. Just to, Yeah, but like I always believed that Taxes are the prices we pay for a civilized society. Uh, Oliver Wendell Holmes said that, and he was a Republican who distinctly believed that we needed that in order to function. And I I know that a lot of people argue about the income tax or whether it's constitutional or not. It is. (laughs) But uh, 
I would disagree with him heavily on there. And I think that's why I'm a little bit against some of his analysis about overthrowing capitalism or how the <laughs> we need to go against that. Uh, I think that we need to come to a harmony together on there. And I think right. Northern Exposure, at least in my interpretation, is showing that yeah. rather than the lesson of being that we need to go back to our original roots. Let's, you know, blow, blow off the bricks off the buildings. Let's return back to nature. <laughs> I don't agree with that. So that's where I disagree with him on there. But I think it's fine to have disagreements within analysis. Yeah, and I, I think you're right. I think Northern Exposure does kind of dance between nature and, you know, the city, basically. I mean, that's Joel Fleischman, fish out of water. And what we learn is, you know, not to, I don't know, Joel is oftentimes presented as an unlikable character, but I think he does find a deeper understanding uh in nature, you know, in his exposure, <laughs> in his exposure to nature. Um, <laughs> and you said already that you really like that Danny's analysis is so in-depth, but also kind of opposite from what you might have taken from the episode. And it's good. We kind of like covering all our blind spots here. Well, hang on. There, There is something that he and I and you and everyone else agrees with, <laughs> Shelly and Holly. Yeah, so... I think Holling and Shelley is never going to make sense to an outsider. It hardly makes sense to us. That's, I mean, I think, you know, that's just what we've got to get used to. Every episode is, if they're in an episode, uh, our guest is probably going to be a little confused with what's going on there. Um, yeah, sorry, Danny, if you're listening, I don't really know what to tell you. <laughs> your they're definitely together is. by the start of the series, though. Yeah. Like, they did not get together. Here's something that Danny caught that, I didn't even bring up on the episode is the fact that in the end, Holling does actually go into debt to Chris. Cause remember that was kind of the whole setup was like, he doesn't want to be in debt to anyone. You know, we, we talked about this. It's like, he doesn't believe in debt or whatever, but that's actually his outcome is he's in debt. I mean, obviously he's in debt to the internal revenue service, but uh, he took out a loan from Chris and, and Chris is going to be very generous, you know, and, and no interest and, and such. But but yeah, that's the that's the cold hard facts of the episode. Holling is in debt. But he's in debt to a friend, though. There's a difference, at least I believe, in Holling's mind in that you are in debt to an entity created by the government in order to rob you of your purse. <laughs> yeah. Or if you are in debt to a friend that decided to help you out of a tough spot. And maybe he was able to internalize those feelings and be like, oh, well, it's better. This is the way I want to go down yeah. or at least okay. handle my debt. So I think that it's still uncharacteristic. Like, I think he's at peace yeah, with that it, way. It kind of represents a, maybe a shift too, like sort of an arc for hauling. And we talked about this already in our analysis, but uh, that's just kind of the friendliest scene I've ever seen. That's an amazing display of friendship. I, I really love that. All right, well, that does it for Season 3, Episode 11. Next week, we'll be on Episode 12 of the third season. It's called Our Tribe. Any predictions here, Charles? Uh, are the Native American tribe going to start selling coffee? <laughs> Wait, why, why would you think for coffee? That, that commercial. Oh, like that the Maxwell, Maxwell House. Well, we can't sing that because that's actually the, the jingle for Maxwell House is that song by But Madness. we can say it monotonously. Yeah. Our house. <laughs> yeah. Think about the Maxwell House jingle and change house to tribe. That's, that's brilliant. Uh, okay, Charles. I'll see you next week. All right. See you next week. 
Northern Overexposure Podcast is edited by Lee. Our theme song was remixed by Matt Jackson. Thanks to Laser Kitties for the podcast artwork. And thanks to Danny for being our guest analyst. If you'd like to write into the podcast, you can reach us at northernoverexposurepodcast at gmail.com. And of course, thank you for listening.